Hi, my name is Brian, and I'm the lead pastor at Grand Valley Church. We hope that this message helps you explore faith and connect with Jesus. Today we're continuing our series called A Story of Change, and this is a series on the book of Acts. We're starting at the beginning and are working our way through Acts to look at the birth of the church and the beginning of this Jesus movement, of the movement that Jesus began during his ministry, and we're looking at how his followers carried on with his mission, carried on with this movement. And one of the things that we're discovering early on in this is that the choices that we make at the beginning of a movement have a bigger impact down the journey. And so how this movement begins is important for us to understand and recognize and to look at it and see what we can learn. And so last week, we looked at the the middle chunk of Acts 1, and we looked at something that Jesus did on the last time that he was with his disciples. How when they asked this question about what would happen next, Jesus responded by depoliticizing the apostles' desire to create a sovereign nation, and he redirects his followers to a worldwide mission that is directed and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus gives this promise of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit will come upon them and they will be his witnesses to the end of the world. And if you maybe missed last week, or if this is your first week joining with us, I want to encourage you after this message, I'd really like to encourage you to go back and listen to last week's and see how Jesus reshaped and reframed the political beliefs of his followers. And I do believe that is a topic that is especially applicable to the times we live in right now. But we're going to carry on into Acts 1, and we're going to look at what happens next. Because after Jesus ascends to heaven, the apostles, Jesus' followers, and everyone who had put their trust in Jesus, they're left wondering with this question of just saying, well, what now? What do we do next? They're waiting for the Holy Spirit to arrive, but they don't know what that's going to look like. No one has ever experienced that before. And so they're not exactly sure what to do. And so Luke, as he is writing the history of the early church, Luke writes this down, and he says, then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, a distance of half a mile. When they arrived, they went to the upstairs room of the house where they were staying. And it says this, he says, here are the names of those who were present. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. Not Judas Iscariot, the other Judas. And Luke goes on and he says, they all met together and were constantly united in prayer along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, several other women, and the brothers of Jesus. And so Luke is saying that during this time of waiting, they were gathering together, they were devoting themselves to prayer, and kind of waiting for what would happen next. And Luke goes on and he tells us that during this time, when about 120 believers were together in one place, Peter stood up and addressed them. Now Luke includes this detail of 120 believers for a specific reason. Because under Israelite tradition and under the way they governed themselves, if there was 120 heads of household in a certain area, that was enough people for them to form a local Sanhedrin or a local ruling council that would settle disputes and make decisions for the community as a whole. And then those local Sanhedrins were all accountable to the larger, the greater Sanhedrin, which is the one that gets mentioned in the Gospels. And so Luke states this, that there was 120 believers were gathered to establish their legitimacy to self-govern under their own leadership. And so Luke is saying there is enough of this group here 
that even under our previous Jewish rules and our way of governing ourselves, there is enough here for us to start self-governing as a new movement. And so Luke includes that detail to say that. And so Peter is the one who gets up and he addresses them. And you might be wondering, well, who put Peter in charge? And if we go back to Matthew, we actually discover in the book of Matthew that Peter is the oldest of the apostles. But not only that, there's this one moment in Matthew 16 when Peter is the first of the disciples to recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God. And so Jesus replies to Peter's declaration, and he says, Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. So Jesus made this declaration. He put Peter in charge. He says, Upon you I will build my church. And then Jesus goes on and he says this, giving responsibility to Peter. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven, and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Jesus is giving a lot of responsibility and authority to Peter in this declaration. And so if anyone out of who is gathered of Jesus' followers has the right to stand up and to make a declaration to Jesus' followers, It is Peter. And so Peter gets up and he says to the group, believers. Now, if you're following along in your Bible right now, when you go to Acts 1.16, you might have the term brothers instead of believers. And I've chosen to go with the Hebrew translation on this because as Dr. John Polhill, one of the New Testament scholars, puts it this way, he says, believers is a correct rendering of the Greek brothers since the term in Greek was not gender-specific and would include the female as well as the male members of the community. Peter is actually doing something new here in this moment. When they are gathered, before when it listed the apostles, Luke was careful to include that this also included a group of women and Jesus' mother Mary who were part of this early group of believers. So Peter gets up and he says, Believers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled concerning Judas, who guided those who arrested Jesus. This was predicted long ago by the Holy Spirit, speaking through King David. Uh, Judas was one of us and shared in the ministry with us. And so Peter is recognizing that what Judas did to lead the people that arrested Jesus to him was necessary for Jesus to have his trial, to be crucified as the sacrifice for our sins. That had to happen. And so Judas actually fulfilled a crucial role in those events. And when Peter adds this, he says, Judas was one of us and shared in the ministry with us. It almost sounds a bit like he's reframing Judas's life. He's almost giving a eulogy for this disciple that was with them for so many years. And so Peter has been spending time looking back at their scriptures, and he goes to two different places in the Psalms. And Peter continues, and he says this. This was written in the Psalms where it says, let his home become desolate with no one living in it. And that's he believes, is referring to the field where Judas died, a place that became known as the field of blood outside of Jerusalem. And then he goes on, he says, it also says, referring to Psalms, Psalms also says, let someone else take his position. And so Peter is recognizing that the fact that Jesus had 12 disciples was symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so 12 is an important number. And now that they're down to 11, Peter has decided that that what David was talking about applies to this moment. 
and that it is their responsibility to fill this last spot amongst the apostles. And so Peter goes on, he says, so now we must choose a replacement for Judas from among the men who were with us the entire time we were traveling with the Lord Jesus. From the time he was baptized by John until the day he was taken from us, whoever is chosen will join us as a witness of Jesus's resurrection. So Peter is saying that this is the qualification. Someone who was with Jesus the entire three years of his ministry, someone who was an eyewitness who can speak truthfully about who Jesus is and whoever that is, is going to join them as a witness of Jesus' resurrection. And so Luke goes on and it says, they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Now, we don't know much about these two guys, but there's something we can learn about their names. Joseph called Barsabbas, which means son of the Sabbath, means this is a name he has gained by his devotion to the Sabbath, his devotion to his faith and to following God. And then it says, also known as Justice, which is a Greek nickname, meaning one who is just. And so we have Joseph the righteous and just and Matthias. And that's all we know about them, but we can kind of infer something else here. Whenever Luke writes a listing of names, he always puts them in order of importance. And so earlier, when we read the listing of apostles who were there, Peter, John, and James were first because they were Jesus' inner three with Peter at the beginning of those three. And now when Luke writes, Joseph, called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, Joseph the righteous and the just, and Matthias, he is saying that Joseph is the one with the stellar resume. He is the leading candidate, the, the recommendation of the nominating committee, if it were so back then. And so Luke goes on and he tells us this. Then they all prayed, O Lord, you know every heart. Show us which of these men you have chosen as an apostle to replace Judas in the ministry. For he, referring to Judas, has deserted us and gone where he belongs. Now that last line, again, is not a condemnation. It's just a statement of fact that Judas has gone to the results of his own actions. But they're saying to God, show us which of these men you have chosen to replace Judas. So how do they find out? And we get to the last verse of this chunk of Acts that we're going to dwell on a bit. It says this, Then they cast lots, and Matthias was selected to become an apostle with the other eleven. That's the end of this chunk of passage. Matthias, the one named Matthias, gets chosen over the three named Joseph. And the interesting thing is, is this is the last we hear of Matthias. We don't hear anything more in Scripture about what he did, which isn't that uncommon because we don't know most of what the rest of the apostles did after as the early church grew. Luke follows Peter, and then he has a little detour, and he follows Philip for a little bit, and then Paul enters the scene, and Luke spends most of Acts following Paul's ministry. And so we're going to learn a lot about that this year as we carry on through Acts. But Matthias, we don't know anything more about him after this. But that's not the part of this verse that usually stands out to us. Instead, the part that stands out to us is it says, then they cast lots. And that might be a term you've heard of before, or maybe it's a term that's new. But in both cases, it might make you think, hey, wait, wait a second. What is that? What is casting of lots? And so casting of lots is a way of making a decision where in their day, what they would do is they would take a small jar And in this case, there was two men they were deciding between. So they would take two stones of different colors, 
put them in the jar, shake the jar, dump it out, and whichever stone came out first, that is who would be decided upon. That's the way the lot was, the way the lot fell was Matthias's stone came out of the jar before Joseph's. And you might think, wait a second, why are they making a decision like that? Doesn't that just sound like random chance? Well, this actually reveals something about their worldview. Now, first of all, what this does is by casting of lots, they are making a decision in a way that they can actually say, you know, this wasn't a political thing. This wasn't a favorites thing. You know, Matthias didn't bribe us. This wasn't a human decision. This was a God decision. And so when they talk about this, in their worldview, they believe that when they're petitioning God in prayer and saying, God, we need you to make a decision. We need to know your will. When we cast lots under that condition, that is a way that God can reveal his will. Now, that's not all the time. Because if you go through scripture, there are multiple times when the casting of lots comes out. And there's actually two different forms of it that happens. And so in the Bible, the casting of sacred lots, what's happening here in Acts, is one step in a process of seeking God's will. And other times it's referred to as throwing dice, which describes a decision being made by random chance without God's involvement. So for example, when the Roman soldiers at Jesus' crucifixion They gamble to divide up Jesus' clothes and his belongings. And so, in that case, that's referred to as throwing dice. But in this case, it's referred to as casting lots, of saying this is part of a sacred process in which we believe God is revealing his will. And if we go to the Old Testament, to the book of Proverbs, this book of Hebrew wisdom that we attribute to Solomon, it says this, we may cast lots, but the Lord determines how they fall. Now, they're saying that God is in control when you are doing this process. When you are praying, when you're seeking God's will, God is choosing the result so that we will follow God. Now, we have to be careful not to exaggerate that, to say that this means God is in control of every single event that can happen. Because if we say that, that makes it way too easy for us to deny the human factor in every decision. It makes it way too easy for us to deny responsibility for actions if we say, well, it's all just random chance and God controls everything that's random chance to make it happen the way it is. So that wasn't my fault. That is not at all what this means. But casting of lots was done in prayer and properly and believed to be how God revealed his will. And this is used a couple in different circumstances. It's used to divide up the land when each tribe of Israel comes into the promised land under Joshua's leadership. They cast lots to decide which family group gets which chunk of land in their tribe's allotment. It's used on the Day of Atonement at the temple to decide which of the goats is sacrificed as a blanket sacrifice for the sins of the Israelites and which goat is called the scapegoat, which is sent out of the city. And so, The decision between which goat is which is done by casting lots. It's also used to assign duties in the temple and the guard, you know, when each family group would be responsible of bringing something to the temple or which group of Levites would be responsible for serving in a certain month. That was all assigned by lot. And the last one is interesting. The casting of lots was also used to uncover guilt. Now, it wasn't used to assign guilt or to assign punishment, but just to uncover guilt, to say, who do we need to talk to about this problem that's happened? And there's two examples of that in scripture, and I'm going to briefly talk about them here. 
The first one happens in 1 Samuel 14 when Saul is the king, and he was the king before David, the first king of the united monarchy of Israel. And in one time when they are at war with the Philistines, they're winning, and Saul makes this declaration. He says, may a curse fall upon any of my men who eats or drinks before the battle is completely done. Now, that is not a wise oath to make. But he makes this oath, and many of his soldiers do not even hear that he makes this oath because they're all spread out across the battlefield. And Saul's own son, Jonathan, Jonathan, as they're moving through the city, he dips the tip of his staff into a jar of honey and eats a tiny morsel of honey and feels refreshed and kind of energized to carry on with the battle. But of course, he broke Saul's commandment. And so they cast lots to decide, you know, they know that sin has entered the, their army. And so they cast lots to reveal and to narrow the group down until they know that Jonathan did something. So they ask him, Jonathan, what did you do? And then he confesses, well, I ate a morsel of honey. I didn't know about this oath from Saul. And in that instance, the lot revealed his guilt, but it did not condemn him. And in fact, all of everyone around looks at Saul and says, this was a foolish oath. You never should have made that declaration. And so they actually overturn it. And Jonathan is spared of any punishment. And the second time this appears is in the book of Jonah. And we did a series on Jonah a little while ago, and you can find it here on YouTube. When Jonah is fleeing from God on a boat and this great storm comes up and they're in danger of being shipwrecked by this storm, the sailors on the boat cast lots and the lot falls to Jonah. And they say to Jonas, okay, what did you do? And Jonah reveals to them, I am fleeing from God. And if you want to know what happened in that one, you can find week one of our Jonah series here on YouTube. But back to the apostles choosing Matthias. When they come to this decision about who's going to join the apostles and they pray and they work through the qualifications to say both of these are valid and qualified candidates. They cast the lot and it falls to Matthias and they viewed this as God speaking to choose Matthias. And so they agree, this is the decision. Matthias is going to be one of the apostles and they carry on from there. Now, something we need to know is that after this moment, after Matthias is chosen, the casting of lots is never again used by the apostles. In fact, it doesn't even appear in Scripture after this point. And so when we look at this passage and we say, what do we learn from this? What do we learn from this passage that almost feels a bit like filler between the promise and the arrival of the Holy Spirit? What are we supposed to learn from this? And I think that there's something this passage reveals that is actually more about us and how we read Scripture than about the events that happened in this exact passage. Because if we were to only look at Acts 1, 21 to 26, you could make the assumption that casting of lots is how followers of Jesus are supposed to make decisions. Because after all, that's what Peter did. That's what Peter did when he was put in charge of leading this movement of the church. Jesus said to him, whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. Whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. So you could read this passage and assume that this is the way followers of Jesus are supposed to make decisions. And that would be a valid assumption. But that doesn't take into effect the bigger 
story of Scripture. It doesn't take into account what God has been doing throughout Scripture on a bigger scale. And this is why how we read the Bible actually has a deep matter and influence on how we understand the Bible. Because Luke does not say in this passage, and that was the last time the apostles cast lots. He doesn't include any caveat, any instruction. He just says, they cast lots, they chose Matthias, and they carried on. And in the next passage, the Holy Spirit arrives. And Luke actually leaves it to his reader to understand something. But here's what this reveals about us today. And and about us and about this topic of casting of lots or even other things that appear in scripture, is casting of lots is a biblical practice, meaning it is a practice that is found in the Bible. But we know it is not the prescribed way for followers of Jesus to make decisions. And Luke makes that clear through the remainder of Acts, because whenever there's time for a decision to be made, Peter doesn't grab for a jar and some stones. Instead, in every instance, they pray and they seek the Holy Spirit and they receive the Holy Spirit's guidance. And so when we read Acts 1, 21 to 26, in relation to the arrival of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2, what we're going to talk about next week, we can see that the casting of sacred lots has ended in favor of listening to the Holy Spirit's guidance. This is a turning point in the book of Acts. This is a moment where the old ways and the old practices start to fall away and get replaced by the new practices given by the Holy Spirit. And so in this moment, even though Luke doesn't include a footnote to the reader, he doesn't include extra instructions, Luke is not just doing the work of a historian. In Acts, he is doing the work of a theologian, and he is revealing what is different in the new movement that Jesus has launched. Luke is, as he is writing this for Theophilus, and knowing that more than Theophilus is going to read this, that this is about instructing the early church about what is coming next in Jesus' new movement. And so in the early stages of the book of Acts, we see the early church figuring out how to reveal Jesus to the world in a new way. We see them putting away some of their older practices, practices like casting of lots, and moving into new practices like listening to the Holy Spirit for guidance and reliance and the things of the early church that start shifting and changing that we're going to keep exploring in this series. Because this is a moment in time where a new movement is beginning. And as I said at the beginning, the choices that we make at the beginning of a movement have some of the biggest effect and impact on where this movement will go. And so this is not a question and something that only the early church has had to wrestle with. In fact, every generation of Christ followers has had to wrestle with this tension of saying, what does it look like to reveal Jesus to our friends, our family, and our neighbors in where we are right now in 2021? What is different about 2021 than 2020 or 1995 or 1980 or 1900s or 1800s, 1700s, or as far back as you want to go? Because as our world shifts and changes, Our place as followers of Jesus is not to say, we want everything back the way it used to be. Our position as followers of Jesus is, what is God doing here and now? What is Jesus' new covenant that he made, his kingdom of heaven, 
that he instructed us to pray, may God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven, what does that look like for here and now? And so we have to wrestle with this as followers of Jesus, of saying, what is it that we actually have to lean into now? And as we look at scripture, as we look at God's word, as we seek the guidance of the Holy Spirit, what are the things that we have to do to reveal Jesus? And as we talked about last week, if we aren't the ones to reveal Jesus, if we who are committed to Christ's way of life, if we are not the ones to reveal Jesus, the picture of the Jesus follower that our world sees is whichever one gets splashed on the evening news or on social media the most. And so we have a responsibility as followers of Jesus. And maybe this is a a continuation of last week in this way. Jesus reshaped his followers' political beliefs. And we have the opportunity now to reshape how people view followers of Jesus, how people view Jesus. And so that is on us today. And so I just want to take a moment and say thank you for the conversations and the emails about last week's message and how that is encouraging us to hopefully shift the way that we are interacting with the world. And and as we think about this passage from Acts that we could be quick to dismiss as just transitionary, but may we see in passages like this that there is a movement happening where Jesus is drawing the world to himself and is doing so by revealing himself in many ways. And so next week, we are going to get to what is arguably one of the most important passages of the book of Acts, the arrival of the Holy Spirit, and how that leads to really the birth of the church, where at this point when the apostles were gathering, they didn't really know exactly what they were doing. They were just waiting for the Holy Spirit. And so next week, we are going to dive into what happens when the Holy Spirit shows up. And so I hope to see you online next Sunday. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you know of someone that would benefit from hearing the message you just listened to, would you do us a favor and share this podcast with them? And while you're at it, please consider subscribing to be the first to hear when our podcast is updated. If you want to join in on Sundays, our services are streaming online at 11 a.m. Central. To find out more about our church, go to mygrandvalley.ca and you can also find us on Instagram and Facebook by searching for My Grand Valley. Thanks for listening.